Good morning. Abrupt transitions. I am Pastor Mike, and before we get to the message today, I got two quick strategic items to share. First, as a reminder, at E3 every year we close the Sunday after Christmas. This year, that is Sunday, December 31st. We do this to give our volunteers and our staff a break, because believe it or not, we don't only work today. But I bring that up because when we return on January 7th, we are going to be moving to two gatherings. Yes. We're going to be at 9 and 11 a.m. This is very exciting for us. This is because this church is growing and we're meet. I mean, you can't tell today because of the rain, but we have been meeting our capacity. So we need to expand. We're going to break into two gatherings. It's going to be super awesome. It's an awesome sign of what's taking place here. But also with that, we need double the volunteers. We need double the help. We need double the people that are willing to lend a hand, especially at E3 Kids right now. So I just wanna encourage you, one, to pick whichever day and time you wanna show up after the new year, but also more importantly, if you are able to volunteer in any way on Sunday, please reach out to the staff. Let us know. We wanna get you plugged in. We need your help. Amen? Amen. And second, relatedly, I wanna highlight that we'll be kicking off in January the year with one of my favorite series that we do here at E3. And that is we are bringing back the Y series. Who here was here last time we did the Y series? Okay. For those of y'all who do not know, the Y series is this really entertaining uh, set of teachings that we do where the teaching team actually preaches on your questions. Last time around, this is about two years ago, we had questions ranging from the nature of suffering, why is there suffering in God's good world, all the way to why or do aliens exist? Which is one of my favorite sermons I've ever been a part of here at E3. All to say, I'm so excited. I'm sure we're gonna have equally hilarious and great questions, thoughtful questions this time around. And if you are interested in submitting such a question for us to consider, please do so either via the Echo page, there's a link there, or you can grab one of the flyers at the table by the door. There's a QR code on the back of that. Scan it and you can submit whatever you wanna ask. Doesn't mean we'll cover it, to be clear, but we will consider it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Cool. Now, for today's teaching, this is week two of Advent. That four-week stretch before Christmas where historically the church reflects upon Jesus' arrival, his birth, through readings and the lighting of the four Advent candles, symbolically representing the light of hope, peace, joy, and love that we believe Christ brought into our otherwise dark world. Themes we're exploring this year through the various diverse perspectives of the key characters from Jesus's birth story in our series, Christmas Ads. And last week, Lori did a great job teaching on hope and Mary, the mother of Christ. And today we are gonna turn towards peace. Now, peace is an interesting concept. You see, it's this hard to define state of being that's even harder to measure. And that's because, in my experience, peace is an entirely subjective experience. What do I mean by that? Well, let me ask y'all a question. How heavy is this hand weight? Shout it out. Three pounds. Three pounds. It says three pounds on it, so that's why I said three pounds. Hey! Everyone, applause for Lindsay. Now, if you said three pounds, congrats, you can read. Um, you're wrong, critically, you are dead wrong, but you're literate, and that is exciting, right? That is awesome, good for Lindsay, right? And really, it's not Lindsay's fault, 
because that was clearly a trick question. If you notice, I did not ask how much this objectively weighed. I asked how heavy it is, which is not measuring its objective weight. It's measuring how it subjectively feels to me in the given moment. For example, presently, I'd say that this weight is not heavy at all. In fact, it's quite light. But ask me again after I've held it for an hour. Who thinks that I would say it's a little bit heavier than I first surmised? I would imagine my arm would start to feel quite strained, right? And if somehow I held this all day, which is not possible, but imagine that I did, who thinks I would call this the heaviest object in the universe at that point? I mean, this would require all of my strength to hold it up at all until eventually, inevitably, my muscles would literally spasm and give out. I would be forced to drop it because this three-pound weight would object subjectively become too heavy for me to hold at all. Are y'all tracking with me? And it's so interesting, right? Because through that process, you'll notice its weight never changed, did it? Yet its heaviness, that changed dramatically from my perspective. And I bring that up because I have found this to be true of peace as well. You see, everyone has problems, big and small. Some combination of people, events, and circumstances that we wished were different what my old sponsor Bill used to call mosquitoes. Anxieties, failures, disappointments, frustrations that just buzz around our heads throughout the day, right? In my experience, many people connect peace to some measurement of those mosquitoes, some measurement of those problems. Imagining them as possessing some sort of objective weight usually determined by their seriousness multiplied by one social media consumption on a given day, right? This problem weighs X amount exceeding my arbitrary existential peace threshold and thus everything is bad. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? No, I'm the only one. But here's the thing. Yo, that's crazy. That's insanity, right? Because notice in that, our ability to feel peace isn't tied to anything that we actually control, is it? Which is what? What do we actually control in this world? Nothing. Just ourselves, right? But in this formula, our ability to feel at peace is tied instead entirely to controlling everything and everyone else outside of ourselves, which we fundamentally can not do. Do you see what I'm talking about? And me and, I mean, no wonder we end up in that rat race, right? Believing if I can just get enough, control enough, do enough, win enough, force enough people to agree with me, escape from enough suffering, swat enough mosquitoes, will enough problems to weigh absolutely nothing, oh boy, then I'd feel at peace. Again, anyone else know what I'm talking about? It's easy to see how we end up creating such formulas in our head. But y'all, that's obviously delusional. 
Connecting peace to the absence of problems only ensures that we'll never actually find peace. Because to live is to suffer. To live is to have problems. To have to carry at least one person, event, or circumstance that we fundamentally do not want. Which is why I've come to believe that peace isn't actually about the weight of our problems. No, it's about their heaviness. And maybe you'll relate to this. You see, when I think about my problems just long enough to identify and act upon what I can actually control, myself, my choices, and then I surrender their outcomes, well, my goodness, y'all, my problems feel lighter. But when I dwell upon them for hours, my arm starts to ache, my mind starts to ache, my heart starts to ache. And when I obsess about them for days, weeks, months, years, when I start letting them live rent-free in my head, well, inevitably, they begin to feel like the heaviest things imaginable. And I start to feel crushed beneath them. Last time, anyone else? Am I the only one? They didn't think so. And what I want to posit today is that Christ's arrival offers us a peace that's different from that insanity. One grounded, not in escaping all problems as if we ever could, but in changing how we carry them and thus how heavy they feel. This Advent peace that we're going to explore is through some easily overlooked characters from Christ's birth story. And we're picking up right where we left off last week. So recall, an angel told Mary in the Gospel of Luke that she'd birthed God's Messiah. And now here we begin in chapter two to continue the story. Verse one, we read, in those days, who? Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town and registered. Now, pause. Because Luke's setting up something with this historical reference that's quite important to where he wants us to go today. You see, this occurs during the reign of this guy, Caesar Augustus, the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who, following Julius Caesar's dead, became the most powerful person alive. Who knows why? What did he do in the Roman Empire? He transformed it from a republic to an empire. And guess who was on top of said empire? He was. Oh my gosh, what a shock, right? <laughs> Caesar, he became the emperor of this entire, almost empire that covered all of Europe. And this consolidation of power during which Augustus did two important things for where we're going today. One, he declared that Julius Caesar was divine, making himself also divine, the son of a God. And two, he staged this triumphant arrival into Rome, lining the streets with the most powerful people of the empire before he paraded past them to his throne and proclaimed from there that his reign marked the climax of all human history, that he was bringing with him in this new empire, this epoch of peace, never before seen, not just for Rome, but for the entire world. And that rise to power sets up this story because one way that Augustus wielded said imperial power was by periodically taking stock of his dominion through a census. 
Now, for many of us today, a census is largely just what? It's just a bureaucratic nightmare, right? It's an annoyance. It's one of those mosquitoes, right? We have to fill out some paperwork, send it in, and ta-da, we never think about it again. But that is not what is happening here. You have to understand that this is much more than that. You see, the Roman Empire expanded, not peacefully, but through violently conquering and subjugating other nations, including Israel. And in that, a census wasn't just about bureaucracy, was it? No, it was a display of domination, forcing conquered peoples to stop what they were doing and immediately go register with a Roman official, acknowledging that Caesar had total control over you, your family, your work, your daily life before numbering y'all like cattle so they could tax the heck out of you. All to say, with this opening line, Luke grounds us in this historical moment where God's people are suffering under Roman oppression, left longing for God's Messiah, God's King, who God promised would one day rescue his people, who'd no doubt arrive with even more grandeur, even more might than Augustus, than Caesar, come to no doubt kick Roman butt. Am I right? That's what we'd expect if we were in their shoes. And y'all, Luke's drawing these expectations to mind intentionally by beginning this way. And he's doing so not to confirm them, but rather to upend them. You see, Luke wants to contrast this image of Caesar in power and empire with a very different one. We continue in verse four. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the whole baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So God takes this census, this flaunting of imperial power, and he turns it upside down, right? He uses it not to expand Rome's might, but to bring about the climax of his story, the birth of his Messiah. But how God's king arrives is, shall we say, strange, right? Because did Jesus arrive in Jerusalem, Israel's capital and power center? Yes or no? No, he arrives in the small podunk pastor town in Galilee, literally the boondocks, Nowheresville, Israel's poorest, most rural region. Well, that's very strange. But hey, at least he was born into a palace surrounded by servants, right? Well, no, he's born in either the ground floor or the courtyard of a full guest home or inn, a space reserved for animals, hence the manger, a feeding trough for cattle that he is placed within. And also that Mary swaddles Jesus herself infers not help, but a lonely birth, does it not? If you're a mom, <laughs> did you have to swallow your newborn baby right after giving birth? No. This is an image of loneliness, of separation, of isolation. I mean, altogether, we get this picture of Jesus, the son of God, the Messiah, arriving not in might and power, but in weakness, Poverty, obscurity, loneliness, even rejection. There wasn't even room at the inn for him. It's all upside down. Do y'all see that? 
And y'all, Luke ain't even done yet because remember who witnessed Augustus's arrival into Rome? All the most powerful people of the empire. Let's see who witnesses Jesus's arrival. Verse eight, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified naturally, that makes sense. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heavens and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. So not kings, the rich or powerful, not even Israel's religious leaders. No, who's invited to be the first witnesses to Jesus's arrival? No named shepherds. And y'all, this is shocking. You know, there are moments in the Bible, like with King David or God, where shepherding is associated with important figures. But you have to understand that in the first century, shepherds were not a respectable kind of people. This vocation was not held in high esteem. Shepherds were usually poor. They were often disliked by other people because they had this tendency of grazing their flocks through other people's property. Imagine like the dog that keeps pooping on your lawn that you don't own, right? But 10 times worse because your land was your, your money. Your land was everything at this time. And on top of that, they were viewed dubiously by religious teachers in their day because they were often unclean because they were always proximate to animals, all to say these shepherds belong to a disreputable class of people stereotyped as dirty, poor, irreligious, and untrustworthy, aka not the kind of people that Caesar would give front row seats at his parade. Am I right? And yet this angel appears to them and makes this explosive proclamation. And y'all, this is so cool. I'm going to geek out for a second if that's okay. Because this is awesome. Why don't you check this out? First, the angel declares it's bringing what's in Greek called a euangelion, or in English, what gets translated as a good news announcement or a gospel, which is a provocative word from the Roman world. You see, the Roman empire literally believed that they were at the center of the universe, that they marked the center of history. And thus, if there was an important event within their empire, well, everyone needed to know about it, right? If there was this imperial event like the arrival of a new emperor, their enthronement, a successful military conquest, then they believed that it fundamentally brought about a new state of affairs, not just for Rome, but for all of humanity. And since they were so self-absorbed, obviously such an event needed to be shared. Thus, Rome would send out messengers throughout the empire proclaiming you and Jelions. Good news announcement, gospels of Caesar, Augustus, the divine king of the world. For example, here's an inscription from this time concerning, and I quote, the birthday of Augustus, which has been for the whole world, the beginning of guess what? A gospel. Keep up. (laughs) Listen to these excerpts. The most divine Caesar, who we should consider equal to the beginner of all things, for when everything was falling into disorder, he restored it and peace giving the whole world a new aura. Providence brought our life to the climax of perfection and giving us Augustus, who being sent to us as savior, 
has put an end to war, setting all things in order and having become God made flesh. Caesar fulfilled the hopes of all earlier times. Does anyone notice any similarities? And understand, these proclamations were on every street corner in Jesus's day. Rome wanted all these people that they had subjugated to know who was in charge, whose events mattered, who got to say what made history or not. Thus, when the angel says, I bring a euangelion, y'all, these shepherds are all ears. They understand that whatever comes next is going to announce a new state of affairs, not just for them, but for the entire world. But is this euangelion about Caesar? Is it about Rome? Is it about the might of empire? No, this euangelion is about Jesus, the Messiah, who the angel then gives this second title, Kyrios or Lord, which denotes someone who reigns with ultimate authority in this place. Let me ask you, who was Kyrios according to the Roman Empire? One man, Caesar Augustus. Except not any more. Because according to God's euangelion, the true Lord of this earth has arrived to reclaim his world. Not through conquest but by reestablishing God's peace throughout all of creation. Y'all, that's the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, the king of peace. That's the good news announcement that Luke leaves ringing in our ears to start his story. Before concluding in verse 15 with this, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, which were just as they'd been told. So these poor, dirty, forgotten, no-named shepherds become the first people outside of Jesus' parents to witness the real climax of history, the Messiah's birth, before departing amazed and changed by this experience. And really, that transformative amazement is what this story is about. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project put it like this, if God is really coming to save the world, this isn't how you'd expect him to arrive. Born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl celebrated by no-name shepherds. Everything is backwards in Luke's story here. He's showing how God's kingdom was first revealed in these dirty places among the poor because Jesus is here to bring salvation by turning our world order upside down. Y'all, that's the gospel, right? And I mean, it's mind-blowing. The creator of everything not only became human, that's, that's crazy enough, but also in doing so, he had chose to identify with these nobodies. That when God of the cosmos took stock of his entire cosmic dominion, he looked at them, people like them, in the dirt, working with their hands, and said, that's who I want to arrive to first. 
Oh my goodness, is that good news? Am I the only one who sees that? Yo, that's good news. If like these shepherds, you've ever been discarded by this world. If you've ever been told that you're too dirty, poor, worthless, unimportant, least. If that's you, y'all, then Advent sings out that God chose people like you to witness the birth of his king first. Amen. <laughs> that's amazing. And that should turn upside down how we think about this world, how we think about ourselves, others, God, and of course, peace. Because in Christ's story, peace clearly isn't about acquiring power, wealth, status. It isn't achieved through conquest or leveraging more control over other people, events, and circumstances, as if we even could. It's not created on the other side of having zero problems, smashing every mosquito, escaping all discomfort, or never carrying anything of weight. No, in fact, apparently, in Christ's story, peace isn't created by us at all. Instead, it's found in a person. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. A person who became human to show us how to be human again. A person who surrendered power, sacrificed everything so that we could find peace. A person born into cold, lonely darkness who identified not with the powerful, violent, corrupt, comfortable, entrenched, and prideful, but the weak and the rejected, those deemed too insignificant to be invited to this world's victory parades. Y'all, that's the source of our peace. That child through whom God declared in this upside down way, his euangelion and reestablished his cosmic peace. And here's the best part. If you're anything like me and this season is the worst <laughs> and you feel upside down and you feel stressed and you feel anxious and you feel lost, here is the best part. That Advent peace is freely available to us, not in the afterlife, not somewhere else, but here and now. Because y'all, what did the shepherds have to do to find the king of peace? Did they have to change their circumstances, manipulate events and other people, dominate subjects, escape suffering? No, they simply had to stop, listen to God, seek Jesus, and boom, they found them right in their world, in the middle of nowhere, which highlights what makes this Advent peace so different from our often delusional formulas for creating it. Because y'all, did Jesus, in finding Jesus, change their circumstances in the blink of an eye? Did they like see the baby Jesus and suddenly they became rich and bought a boat? No. In fact, they seemingly return to their lives without anything changing of note. They go right back to being shepherds. But something's changed in the story. What's changed? Y'all, they have. They've been changed. They leave amazed and transformed by this encounter. They leave made new in some way as they return to their lives. For them, Jesus' birth and all it reveals about this cosmos, who's the king of it, what he intends for it, that revelation becomes this new vision for reality that they carry into whatever comes next. That becomes something that can't be taken away from them. That gospel person, Jesus, God with them in this moment becomes their peace in an otherwise still chaotic world. And y'all, that preaches, right? That preaches, if you ask me. 
Y'all, we lack peace not because we have problems, but because we're too busy, too controlling, too afraid, too sure that we're right, too convinced that we are the ones directing this universe. And in that, we become so obsessed with our little deal, right? Our little pocket of earth, that's mine, that I have to control, that I have to manipulate, that I have to make sure nothing goes wrong in this little corner of reality that I call my own. Dwelling on the unchangeable past or the uncontrollable future, so preoccupied with ourselves that we miss these burning bushes. We miss God proclaiming gospels all around us saying, I'm here, right here. Let me give you my peace. And we just walk right past because we're so focused on trying to carry this entire life by our own will until inevitably it gives out because life is too dang heavy for us to carry by our own strength. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? (sighs) And in that insanity, that insanity, I say it again, that insanity, Advent invites us to instead find ourselves in these shepherds to seek a peace that comes not from changing what's out there, but from letting Jesus's arrival change what's in here. From learning to in the midst of this life, that will always be imperfect to stop, listen, and seek the king of peace who can always be found right next to us because y'all, if he could be found by those shepherds in that manger, in that dark night, then he can be found anywhere. Amen? So as we inch towards Christmas, I challenge you to embrace Advent peace. Over the coming weeks, When something inevitably comes along that might normally take away your peace, an argument with a family member, no one ever has those, that ego whisper, buying that next thing will complete you. That encounter with someone who needs help, but you've got that thing that's just more important than their care. Whatever that person, event, or circumstance is, in that moment, I want you to stop, listen, Recognize God's with you and ask, how can I seek not my egos, not Caesar, but Christ's peace right here, right now, in this moment. Do that and just see if your response to those mosquitoes changes. If that problem feels lighter, if you find more peace. Because y'all, that's what Christmas as the shepherds is about. Amen? Amen. Let's worship.